And what does it what does it say on the screen? Oh shoot, that says Art House Drive-In? Splittooth Media's latest film podcast? Aren't we the the co-hosts of that podcast? Are you Robert? Are you T? Oh snap! Is that is that our faces up in the sky? Uh, looking pretty good, looking pretty good. I guess we'll be coming back here pretty uh, pretty often then, at least every week. At least every week, talking about at least one film or two short films, or I guess we'll be going on a on a journey through the world of our house film. I guess. Yeah, that's pretty. That's gonna be pretty cool. <laughs> Come along, everybody. More room in the drive-in. I don't know how we got here, but I love it. Welcome, everybody, to the inaugural episode of this podcast where I am leading my cousin, T, through the world of art film, of avant-garde film, of experimental film, like a like a Sherpa going through the Himalayas. You're my spiritual leader going through this journey. <laughs> That's what I want to be, man. That's why I want to be there for you. And uh, <laughs> so my name's my name's Robert. And uh, so my background is in the, you know film studies. I just finished my master's at NYU in cinema studies, and I, I studied film at BU as well. And I've worked for some film festivals and production companies. Now I work for a nonprofit that works with screenwriters and all that stuff. So I am in the in the weeds of all of this stuff mm-hmm. and uh I'm, I'm here with one of my best buds and and cousin yep uh my name's t uh, my name is actually rob as well but you know didn't want things to get too confusing here uh i have zero background in film uh <laughs> i studied geology in school and i'm currently uh working a job to save up for my master's program i uh, did a little bit of theater uh and performing arts along the way uh, but that by no means makes me qualified to judge any of these. <laughs> so, so now you know because this is the first episode, we're going to introduce the idea as as well. So, you know, lately I've been sort of ruminating and obsessing about how to introduce someone to the world of art house film for the first time if they've never, you know, experienced that before. And um, I talk a lot about it in the past with you know with people here at Split Tooth and everybody else about my journey and. You know, I was on a very normal path, even though I was in film school, um, until I stepped into Ray Carney's, uh, John Cassavetes and Robert Brisson class, which was way over my head, and I was not ready for that at all. And um, Brett and Jason, who work for Split Tooth, were actually in that class and, and sort of helped me along, like um, film studies angels. And um, I kind of want to do some, I wanted to build a show around, you know, opening the door for somebody into this world of film like the door was opened for me by people like Jason and Brett and Carney and um each so each episode is going to be centered around one film and we are going to be ramping it up towards you know the very very challenging sort of esoteric stuff but in the beginning it's going to be it's going to be a very nice transition from sort of mainstream presentations into the the most strange and the most weird of of cinema in that way and um i picked t i yeah. call him t i've called him t my whole life but uh because he's a curious and open guy and i knew he would be open to these experiences yeah man uh 
kind of similar like i i don't watch too many movies as it stands i watch a lot of the mainstream stuff that comes out uh i particularly like horror movies but i'm actually really interested to see this whole different side of film well you'll fit right into split tooth because there are some horror addicts here perfect so (laughs) so and uh you know we can take the show in many different directions as well i want to have guests on that know more about you know certain films than me you know come in and add their perspective we can do interviews which would be awesome i've been interviewing a lot of people for for split tooth and for and for the rhode island international film festival as well so i'd love to talk with people again and 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 get their perspective from the source from mm-hmm. the primary source as well and uh you know what was your reaction when i first brought this idea <laughs> brought this um, idea to you <laughs> i thought it sounded really cool um it definitely was something so out of my wheelhouse that I was basically like, yeah, man, I'll come along with this. Um, I don't know how much I can contribute. Uh, I don't think any of these films are going to be about rocks uh, or video games, which is really the only other aspect of my life that has any definition. Uh, yeah, but there, I mean, there actually is a Jody Mac film about a mineral collection that I really want to show you. You might all right, well, tell you what, on that one, I can give some valuable <laughs> feedback. That would uh, be awesome. for, for the rest, like, I'm just kind of excited to check out all these new films. Uh, so far, the first one you gave me was a pretty good hit, so um, I'm looking forward to the rest. Yeah, I'm, ex- I'm so excited. I'm so glad you liked uh, our first film, which is La Jetée by Chris Marker. So in the beginning of these episodes, we're going to do, like, a fast and dirty history of the director and and the film so i'm going to dive into that as quickly as possible for the boring pedantic side of of the beginning of this so chris marker uh experimental filmmaker made films from 1952 all the way to 2011 and he actually recently died in 2012 at the age of 91 after making 66 films when you imagine that do you know when his last one was released like was he just Uh, like 2011 Jesus. So he was just making films until he died. That's insane. The man is a legend. And uh, he was very famous for being part of sort of the French new wave of filmmakers that emerged in the 1950s. And they were all, you know, they've all made a ton of films. But he was, you know, specifically ingratiated in the left bank, which is the more experimental side of of the French new wave and maybe the 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 less successful side who's really to say but you know he's in the in the halls with Agnes Varda and Jacques Demy and Alan René and you know all those names that I can butcher mm-hmm. in French mm-hmm. all day mm-hmm. long definitely and, um, people that I know um, or will know <laughs> yeah. in the future and 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 unlike sort of the right bank filmmakers who were very movie obsessed and they wrote for Cahiers du Cinema and were film critics and themselves you know the left bank was very inspired by literature and by fine arts the plastic arts one could say so they were less sort of movie obsessed than like Truffaut or Godard or or whoever Mm -hmm. and and Marker himself how you love in this history lesson I'm sure it's (laughs) I'm learning something new I don't mind yeah and you know he's known primarily for for three films other than La Jetée. La Jetée is one of his most well-known works, but he's known for A Grin Without a Cat, which is a highly political film that's mostly found footage about sort of the politics of the 60s and 70s, I think the 50s as well. It's an amazing film. Um, It's pretty brutal, and it has a brutal outlook of what politics 
means of like revolution like the pro the cycle of revolution to suppression or revolution to like assimilation of ideas is really bleak in that film yeah um, i'll be honest not what i was expecting from a title like the grinning cat <laughs> no no yeah. and and the second film that he's really known for is sans soleil which um i like to describe as like la jetée on steroids where um i think he even said it's sort of a logical progression from la jetée to sans soleil um we are gonna watch that someday but uh i'm gonna give you some time because i you know it's a toughie yeah you got you got you gotta give me some time to ramp up i mean this first one was maybe 28 minutes but i know you've mentioned there's a seven hour one somewhere in there Uh, that's bellatar we're gonna get there oh boy yeah i don't know but i can take that right off the bat we're i'm gonna bring bellatar into your life it's the last thing i do so you know we're we're gonna get there and and the third film that chris mark is really known for is is called uh, Le Jolie May, which is uh, like a cinema verite style film, where he just goes around Paris and interviews random people, and it's sort of like a random, uh, off the cuff, raw interview film. Um, hmm. Very long; it's like over two hours long. I haven't seen it yet, but I really want to. But I need to de- devote the time and energy to something like that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a quick and dirty history of of our boy, of a Chris Marker. And, uh, you know, and, and the film La Jetée has been very influential. It spawned 12 Monkeys, famously, Terry Gilliam's film. Um, it spawned a music video from David Bowie. It is, you know, very influential. You can see its fingerprints everywhere in sci-fi cinema and everything like that. So, Yeah, after, after yeah. watching it for this first time, I can definitely start to pick up on that. Um, yeah. Uh, particularly for me, Inception. Inception seems like a much longer version of La Jetée. You're With a, a little more Matt Damon, <laughs> I I completely you know I agree. The Inception fans are rabid. I am not one of them, so I am firmly in the Lajete camp. So I'm glad you said that because now we are united in our in our opposition. I should mm-hmm. say, yeah. And and I mean, the only other thing about Lajete is very influenced by post World War II about um, sort of people thinking about France's, the French government's complicity in Nazi occupation. It's about the Cold War, obviously. It's about Mm -hmm. the war in Algeria, global fear, everything like that. Um, Chris Marker and all of those filmmakers made a lot of films about post-colonialism and, or I guess at the time, colonialism, uh, and how damaging that was to sort of global culture and and community. And um, so it's about a lot of different things. And uh, T now is going to go into... Uh, a quick and dirty synopsis of this film so that you all know what it's what it's all about all right so right off the bat i just want to preface this by saying i did not pick the english uh narrated one i picked the french one not on purpose but that's where we're staying um so forgive me if i missed a few key details um so we start off main character he's a little boy we don't even get a name He's hanging out at this airport, and he's like, oh, yes, my fondest memory from the time I was a kid. He sees this beautiful woman. She's just the, fo- the focus of this whole still shot, and then uh, a body fell out of the sky, and World War Three happened. They gloss over that incredibly quickly. Um, but here we are. He's now in a prison camp with, uh, with a bunch of other uh, French people. Uh, am I right in saying that the captors were German, or was that just yeah. me making assumptions? Okay, well, that's definitely, good. they're definitely speaking German. Yeah, I thought I thought so, but at the same time, uh, the subtitles yeah. might have once said like someone speaks in <laughs> German, and I was like, what? Yeah, 
Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. All right, so we find out that these German captors of his are trying to send people back to the past to find a way for their civilization to uh, survive in this post-apocalyptic, uh, post-apocalyptic fallout <laughs> world, uh, which is what I was thinking of basically the entire time. Um, mm-hmm. And so to do that, they need someone who's got the really strong tie to the past. And I guess this guy and his memory of this one girl, it, it fits the bill. Uh, so they pump him full of drugs, send him back to the past, and he has, uh, has a great time uh, walking around parks and going to museums with this woman who just accepts that a stranger pops out of nowhere from time to time. And, uh, and after all is said and done, he goes to the future. And everyone in the future wears buttons on their foreheads. And they apparently have the key to, to salvation, which brings back, and then they kill him right where the bo- he saw that person die as a kid. So we've come full circle. I, I love that that's synopsis. that's my two-minute <laughs> two <minute synopsis. laughs> two minute, I love that. That was awesome. And, and to sort of supplement that as well. So that's like the fun synopsis of it. Uh, but when it's described in experimental film, you know, classes or seminars or whatever, it's a film almost made entirely of still images where there's a a, a blur of motion at one point where Chris Marker actually borrowed a 35 millimeter camera for an hour. Um, This is not a guy that had a lot of money when he was making this Mm -hmm. film, but most of the film is, is completely still in that Mm -hmm. way. So, you know, sci-fi post-apocalyptic dystopian film or, you know, experimental still, still image film in that way. Yeah. And I mean, the still images obviously, were a little weird for me at first. I mean, yeah. I, I can safely say this was the first still image film that I've ever watched. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, at that time, were moving picture films more prevalent? Were there still of course, picture yeah. films coming yeah, yeah. Uh, coming around? Like there, yeah, there were still image films. I'm I'm certain, and you know, it's just this is definitely one that is most well known. The one that I know. I don't know if I can. I I did some research on like still image films, and there's definitely some out there but this is the most notable okay. in that way and and yeah because I, I know that this was like uh sorry uh, i know this is like 1962 oh, yeah. and all but i i was yeah. like i don't know if this is normal for 1962 <laughs> yeah. i don't i re- yeah. i couldn't tell you when actual moving no. pictures became a thing that was not something i studied in rock class <laughs> yeah exactly no so this is definitely not normal. It's not normal today for 62. It's not even normal for like the 30s or the 40s. So this is a very radical film. In oh, that wow. Way. So it's that early. Yeah. Huh. Learn something hey, new man, every day. Film, film goes back a ways to like the early 1900s, like before the turn of the century as well. So that's more. Damn. That's like the boring All historiography right. side that I'm not so hyped up on. But yeah, yeah, and and this goes smoothly into the beginning of our analysis portion, which is the portion that I love because I'm more of an analysis lad than a historiography lad. And mm-hmm. and, and the still images, obviously, is, it, you have to talk about that when you talk about this film immediately. And I think you also have to talk about the first frame of the film and and in regards to composition and everything. Like, what do you think? when you saw that first frame in the beginning of the film and it just stayed there and didn't move as the credits just kept <laughs> moving and you were you like hmm is 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 there going to be some motion in this motion picture um i think at that point 
I, I was kind of like, all right, start of the movie. What am I seeing here? Airport. Mm-hmm. And go. Okay, <laughs> yeah. now. And nothing happened. I was like, all right. Yeah. I was like, maybe there's something I'm supposed to be looking at in this airport. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I really didn't get it. I mm-hmm. I saw a pretty airport, but I mean, it was, an, mm-hmm. it was a black and white photo, the still image. Um, yeah. Uh, as the uh, as the um, subtitles started showing up, I it was like, oh, this uh, this was his favorite favorite spot as a kid to mm-hmm. come and watch the planes take off, and I was like, okay, mm-hmm. all right, yeah. so it has some significance. Um, mm-hmm. It was definitely a very wide shot, like they showed a mm-hmm. lot of that airport. Yeah. Which I guess it, it had a pier kind of like where I guess people could mm-hmm. go and just watch the planes come in. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's not really a, yeah. a thing anymore, though. Yeah, so it's an observation deck. Which that would be cool if there were airports with observ. I'm sure there are. Maybe there must be. I places. just I've never. I I grew I, up. I, I grew up in Jersey, so like Newark. Yeah. Um, no, no such thing. <laughs> no. Yeah, but that that first shot of the film. I, to me, keys into the overarching idea that composition of a shot is, you know, as just is just as important, if not more important, to people like Chris Marker than what is like in the shot. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when you look at the jetty um, and you look at how the frame is composed, it almost looks like this incredible lightning bolt, you know, going across the frame from the bottom left to the top right. It's this incredible sort of way to you know picture that space because the the jetty sort of starts out wider and it goes thinner and thinner as it goes up towards the frame and has this you know great motion to the eye in that way and it and it will that will extend to the entire film and frankly all of his films are are sort of sculpted in that way where every shot is just sort of incredibly dense with not just like aesthetics but with like aesthetic meaning as well and and you know th- from mm-hmm. the first second of the film he's trying to tell you that you know this is a sculpture as much as it is you know a motion picture yeah i i guess especially with still images you really have to work everything you can into mm-hmm. each image you if you don't nec- yeah. you don't have a throwaway one like no. in a like hour and a half two hour feature film now i mean uh, they spend so much time editing those and there's so many scenes that never make the light of day whereas for mm-hmm. this it's like alright we need this one shot to yeah. send a big message yeah and and that sort of gets to the point where um, a lot of films are focused on sequences right they're focused on scenes yeah. they're focused on big chunks of time Lachete is focused on the second you know they're focused on the microsecond you know the of this film where every every bit of, this is one of the tightest films that I've ever seen where if you take out sort of one image I think it it sort of damages the overall composition because everything is so important mm-hmm. to his vision in that way and and pace is in a completely different conversation than it is in other films because this pace is it's very meditative but at the same time it draws you in, in oh one hundred percent although if I could say that there was one throwaway shot in there mm-hmm. um and this might be blasphemy. I'm sure I ha- I'll have some Lajete fans on my ass for this. Um, that one shot as he's being picked for this uh, time travel experiment uh, mm-hmm. where it just focuses on a statue of a kid strangling a duck. <laughs> I don't know what deeper meaning that had. To me, it was just a kid strangling a duck. Um, I, yeah. It went so far over my head, it's not even funny. 
it just it looks so strange i think it adds to the strangeness of of this prison camp of this place which is incredible i guess these captors were like hmm what's gonna really spark up the the decor uh what's going to make the feng shui energy flow in this prison Mm -hmm. i've got it the statue yeah and a and a big part of this film is actually filming art so there's a sequence of a museum there's mm-hmm. multiple shots of statues like the, the duck <laughs> statue like the duck and and of and of other statues i'm i'm sure he went to like some sculpture garden or something oh probably and, um, and you know to me it keys in as well you know obviously like literally on this aspect of sculpture if he's if he's you know filming statues and you're looking at still images there's definitely a one to one that you can you know comparison that you can make but also of the museum experience in that way is a very different experience than your waking uh, consciousness in that way where you're, where you're walking around a museum and your mind is so keyed in to the aesthetics of the space and to you know everything that you're experiencing in that way it's such a different way to experience the world than in your, in, in your waking in your waking daydream and, yeah you know you know yeah and it definitely felt more like uh, a brief uh, walk through a museum than it did sitting down for an actual movie, uh, exactly. which yeah. was honestly pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it was a very different experience than any of the other films that I've ever watched. And mm-hmm. uh, I thought that the still images would make it feel like it was going on forever. I mean, even for a mm-hmm. twenty-eight minute film. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it went on, I, I literally, um, I, I wanted to take some notes, so I wasn't just sitting here with my thumb up my ass, and <laughs> I kind of like paused at one point, and there was like eight minutes left. I was like, Jesus, what the hell? Yeah, and it's it's funny to think about experiencing museums because you know you and I, uh, you know, knowing each other since birth, our mm-hmm. our families have unleashed us on museums many a times, and it's like the I think the most of the time it was just you know, to find something for us to do and get rid of <laughs> yeah. us for a little bit. Just, yeah, just run around the Franklin Institute for two hours mm-hmm. and you get tired out so you could just sleep in the car. Exactly. Like but, yeah, but it, it's funny thinking about today, the museum experience is something like La Jete, but as a kid, it's just like, it's it was very different for me. Like, I go to a museum now just by myself to walk around and meditate in that way, but as a kid, it's just like, you just you're unleashed you like you're just you're unchained from you know class or or you know for the weekend or whatever you can just run around like a tornado mm-hmm. not like la Jete, i don't th- i don't think no i would not but, call la Jete a tornado no uh no. A, a slow moving storm maybe but definitely yeah. not a tornado definitely yeah and and this brings us to our next topic as well other than the still images because i think you can talk about the still images for a long time with ajate and it's the sexiest part of the film and the one that you know makes it stand out but i think a lot of different other parts of the film are really important oh 100 like the sound which is one of the first things you noted to me when we were talking about it i think the sound of lajate is is brilliant absolutely i i loved it uh, yeah. What I what I likened it to, and what I said to you was, it sounded a lot like the intro screen to Halo Three, which is yeah. of course where my mind went. But it it was just this gospel esque choir, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of had this low building intensity, uh, which kind of carried its way all throughout the film. I thought that was really cool, and mm-hmm. uh, even with the shot of the airport that just being in the background 
made even this one still shot of an airport seem incredibly foreboding. Mm -hmm. it, it never had any... It, it never made you feel like, oh, this is going to be a happy film. Right off the bat with this sound... Uh, with the soundscape, it mm -hmm. basically told you, hey, man, you're in for a ride. Yeah, yeah. All of the score of this film uh, is all about tone, which I love. It's not wasted sound. There are no moments where you're just, like, riding along with the soundtrack or whatever like that. It always delivers this incredibly sort of visceral tone to you. Right in the beginning, like you said, right in the beginning of that shot. Like, mm -hmm. you know, my favorite part is the when the choir music coincides with the destruction of Paris like I love how you're describing your synopsis he's like yeah Paris is destroyed whatever because that's exactly well, they went how it over is. it so yeah. fast like in the <laughs> yeah, sp yeah. in the span of like 30 seconds yeah Paris was destroyed I was like all right World yeah. War three happened yeah that's exactly how it feels and and one of the the shots that I love from that sequence is he uh one of the images of is like a, of a bombed out church I assume in World War two mm -hmm. and the choir stretches to their full register and they're just belting it and it feels like you you feel the bombs dropping on on Paris just through sort of the intensity of choir of choir music, which is you know a beautiful way to do it. You don't have to hear gigantic explosions and people screaming and mm -hmm. you know all of the things that you see in sort of modern action movies or sci-fi or whatever. Just like the register of a choir and looking at a, a destroyed church or destroyed buildings is like enough to give you that emotional atmosphere yeah in in your heart yeah like hey there were no there were no michael bay explosions to no. let me know what was going on uh mm -hmm. there definitely was no hand holding coming from chris marker for the scene but he no. just wanted you to follow along he yeah. basically said with all that like don't focus on the how mm -hmm. world war three happened yeah nuclear fallout <laughs> yeah we're over here now let's keep going Chris Marker is not a hand-holdy director. I've only seen seven of his films so far, but in none only of his seven. films do I get... Yeah. Well, that's the thing. When you get into this film study stuff, people make so many <laughs> goddamn know, films that, like, you're not an expert unless you've seen, like, 20 of their films. Like, when I do someone... I have to watch, like, every single one of somebody's films when I do an interview. Like, I've seen you know like 18 of a person's films that i want to interview next and it's like i still have to watch more because she made like 20 something of them you have to it's so exhausting like watching all these films but for chris marker there's no way i'm watching all 66 of his films i will not i refuse even not not even days. not even throughout your life huh throughout my life maybe that's a life goal maybe that's like a bucket list thing. yeah just ha just have a, a little checklist on your wall yeah. And then each time that you get through maybe like ten, no, no, yeah. get yourself a treat, get a tattoo. <laughs> um, don't I'm say, sure, don't say that. I'm Please. sure your mom would would love this one. Oh my god! I know. I just I don't have the money to get a tattoo now. <laughs> so now you're just making me jealous because oh, I, you're gonna get your next tattoo before I get my next one. I was gonna get my next tattoo uh, this past oh, weekend uh, for my twenty fifth, and then I was in the, in the urgent care for my twenty fifth. So that wasn't an oh option. My god, dude! I have like eight tattoos planned and no money to get any of them because they're too expensive. I'm so <laughs> so so so. I can't even watch tattoo videos on YouTube anymore. We're we're starving. We're starving sorry. artists. We can't even get tattoos. <laughs> Starting geologist and film studies nerd. Yeah, mm -hmm. but but you know, hopefully someday. But and and the sound as well. Something we've talked a lot about, uh, privately or off off camera, is the heartbeat mm -hmm. during the the first um, experimentation scene where the protagonist is being pushed into the past 
um, you know, what, how did you feel when you first heard that thudding heartbeat amidst the silence? Mm-hmm. Uh, my first instinct, uh, I, I haven't listened to many heartbeats, but it sounded more <laughs> to me like a, like a dubstep beat in a warehouse rave than a heartbeat. I mean, I knew what it was. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. when it when it came up with the, his captures standing in that uh, in that like uh, bright doorway and like mm-hmm. ushering him to this uh, crazy experiment, it yeah. sounded more to me like so. And it stayed yeah. on that shot for a little bit, and so I'm watching mm. this, and I do get it. I know he's terrified, yeah. but I'm yeah. also dancing a little bit in my seat. It's incredibly rhythmic, so mm-hmm. I agree with you. And I think it delivers the emotion of this scene so, so well, where all you need to hear is just the frantic heartbeat of someone who's terrified, and it sort of connects with you. I think there's a lot of like film theory out there about heartbeats in film and how they synchronize with your own heartbeat, but I don't mm-hmm. know much about that. I don't know if that's just mumbo-jumbo. or I, I know even less about that. Uh, the only other thing that it brings my mind to is another video game uh have you ever played dead (laughs) by daylight no i've watched so much of it online though this is the weird thing about youtubes i haven't played so many games but i've watched a ton of games being played by random strangers right i mean and i guess for for background uh rob's uh, pc that he uses (laughs) is not suitable for most games that require (laughs) uh graphics (laughs) <laughs> just anything mm-hmm. any for sort of animation i have to put it on the lowest setting to play something like civilization 5 so but uh, the heartbeat in dead by daylight it lets you know when the killers are getting close and yeah, so yeah. in the same way that in this video game it sets up this tense atmosphere in an already very tense game um yeah the heartbeat in logite kind of gave me the same the same feeling exactly i completely agree and i mean if i played dead by daylight on my Dell XPS 13 I think it would turn into lava mm-hmm. I think it would just start bursting into flames it would it would fall through the floor and land in the kitchen and yeah. it, it would be a mess I can't like have my laptop on my lap while playing Civ 5 because it gets too hot it mm-hmm. just like burns my legs but <laughs> yeah and and other than the sound I think a lot of people are very narrative focused in film so this is going to be our narrative focused um, event of this podcast where um, the story of La Jete is bananas. Oh, 100%. Crazy. I mean, even for pretty something crazy. that came out in the 60s, yeah. like, hey, we're going to send this guy's consciousness back into the past oh, to, man. I don't know, get food? Dude, I don't I know can't what they wait were thinking. I show you more 60s films because they're crazy. Oh, they're my bananas. God. Yeah, they're insane. Like, that but, was just uh, one of yeah. those parts that I just had to roll with and assume that along the way it would make more sense because. Yeah. I knew essentially what they were sending him back to do, but I didn't see how he was ever going to do it. Yeah, yeah. So they pick him because he has a very strong attachment to this one image. And and to me, it talks a lot about memory and sort of how we remember things. Uh, For the protagonist, he remembers, you know, this moment of his childhood just as like the emotional reaction to a a beautiful woman's face. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe I've been watching so many filmmakers lately who focus so much on memory, but... It makes me think about how I remember things. Do I remember things as like a data point or do I remember things as an emotional sort of moment or even like an aesthetic moment looking at that woman's face? Like, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at your childhood, do you remember them as like a set of mathematical times or or as like a succession of sort of emotional moments? Oh, man, I am the wrong person to ask about my memory. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
I do not have a good memory at all. If I had to be 100% honest, I don't think I can remember much before mm-hmm. fourth or fifth or sixth really? grade. Really? I mean, I, really? I, have, I have images. But if you yeah. told me, hey, remember this one particular day, I yeah. would kind of... I remember the Franklin Institute. I remember um, yeah. a, a lot of, like, specific points of our childhood growing up. But no, a, yeah. a lot of my memory is lost to me, whether that's because that's of multiple concussions from wakeboarding, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think my memory is tied a lot to, like, injuries and pain. Mm. You know, I've been injured so much over my life that, like, you know... I think about that one time in our childhood when I like stepped on glass. Oh, that's like one yep. of the defining moments of my young childhood or like cracking my head open or you know I've been injured so many gosh darn times mm-hmm. at this point that a hey, lot I of cra- my childhood I cracked just, my head open too. I can remember that one. Oh man. Did yeah. you get staples in your head or or stitches? Uh neither, but I still have a neither. scar on my uh on my forehead. I got oh. eight staples. See, I I don't know that it required it. I think it was just a a big bleeder i uh ran mm. full force into the uh edge of a door <laughs> oh my god i don't know how i no. missed it uh but Dude, i no. i remember distinctly uh being dragged away by my first grade teacher and one of my friends yeah. at the time because i had so much blood in my eyes that i couldn't see mm. i i remember being dragged away as well but my story is is more is more heroic mm, than more that. heroic I than was, running into a door i can't imagine <laughs> that i was i was playing football and i i remember there was this like triangle of concrete that people like skip roped on or whatever and i was going up for an interception i caught the ball and someone hit me underneath i i flip over and my head goes right into the Ooh. corner of the triangle i get knocked out and i wake up to all of my friends looking at me like like the sandlot or something like some like kid movie and then i hear someone go i think he's bleeding <laughs> and then a searing pain co- oh, immediately God. coming into my head and the third grade teacher like took off my shirt and put it on my head because it was bleeding so much and stuff yeah that's that's a really hospital. that's a really good story uh yeah. i wish i could take it and make it my own I this is the best part of the story. I haven't even gotten to that yet. Oh, I remember distinctly. Maybe this is just my imagination. I caught the ball. I remember <laughs> catching the ball, and that's an interception. Even though I was destroyed afterwards, mm-hmm. I remember distinctly catching that ball. I think we could fill a whole podcast with just us telling our injury story because I got I got injury story. Oh, I know injury story. Uh, so, and maybe maybe that'll be another time. Um, yeah. Sorry, sorry to derail in, yeah. all, all of the memory talk. <laughs> yeah. I can even divide them between rugby, boxing, Muay Thai. I can like, I can give you flavors, wrestling. I can give you like different sects of my injuries as well. But back to the film. <laughs> Something that's really interesting about, you know, the storytelling is a lot of it is sort of world building embedded into the film, which. You know, T and I have been talking about this a lot because of the Demon Souls remake and everything like that. Mm. But I love stories that are told through the environment, like Lajete. Like you look at, um, there's a shot of a, a doorway um, in the beginning of the prison camp, and there's sort of light pouring through that doorway in this in this incredible way. But the door is sort of shrouded in darkness on all sides, and you sort of get this idea that the people who live in these in these tunnels have no contact with direct sunlight that they only perceive sunlight through sort of vestiges and glimpses which is really sad and tragic mm-hmm. but you know adds so much to the world of this film without you know having to be told 
you know, or look at or hear someone's experience explicitly. Yeah, know? yeah. There aren't many shots that uh, Chris Marker uses to set to give us that idea, but mm-hmm. it's super obvious just in the way that you can see um, the main character and I believe some of the other prisoners too, like staring at this figure shrouded in light. Like mm-hmm. this is clearly not a normal thing for them to have any experience with light, except for maybe when someone is taken away, which it it creates this interesting dichotomy between Mm -hmm. a kind of hopeful feeling and this very tense, nervous, foreboding feeling feeling when people are being taken away for these experiments. Yeah. They they even call that that main doctor a Dr. Frankenstein type. So they know what's going on when he's coming out. Yeah, and it's funny that you get a lot of the the emotion of those scenes through like facial expressions, through mm-hmm. body language, through all of these things that are, are not part of the sort of. I mean, they're part of the mainstream lexicon, but they're definitely not sort of emphasized when you look at the when um, I love that moment where he's expecting Doctor Frankenstein, and I think the quote is that uh, he sees like a very concerned, uh, like reasonable man, mm-hmm. and you look at the doctor's face, and he he looks. He looks so different than you would think. He's not like this uh, malevolent, you know, evil, mad scientist. He almost looks like sad mm-hmm. that he's sort of putting this person through this experience. And you only get that through his facial expression. Yeah, it's just a, he's know? just a regular guy. He wears turtlenecks yeah. just like the rest of us. Everybody's wearing turtlenecks. Everyone wears <laughs> turtlenecks only clothing in the future. To survive. You heard it yeah. here. Yeah, you only wear turtlenecks and goggles in I the mean, future. it's understandable. You lose a lot of heat through yeah. the neck. Yeah, and and something that you know that we can talk until the cows come home but what sort of defines this film as a science fiction film amidst the star wars and the star trek and and in the matrix and the irobot adaptation which i won't speak of here because i love that book so much and i mean that's the one with will smith right I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think it exists. So not, no, I remember it. Su- it was super popular. I think I watched it while I was sick one time. Um, and the robots FX just all the super, time. super realistic. Great plot. Uh, great story. Dude, I saw that movie before reading the book. And after reading the book, I was like, it's just an atrocity, that film. That film is just, ugh, I, I can't. I won't get it. I've never read the book. I'm sorry. Oh, dude, I, I'm probably dude. a disgrace for saying that. Well, dude, I didn't. I didn't read the book either. I saw the film before reading the book, and then I read the book and was like, "This is literally nothing like the f- like. It's nothing like the film at all. It's unrecognizable." Well, sure, but I mean, you, you know? could you can say that about a lot of films and a lot of books, though. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, I mean, but, but and this so gets into uh, how does iRobot tie into Lachete? So for me, Lachete has more to do with the science fiction literature that I love from people like. Frank Herbert or Arthur C. Clarke or Isaac Asimov or Harlan Ellison or Ursula K. Le Guin and um, uh, I just read Bloodchild by Octavia Butler that was really awesome and in a lot of these books there's some sort of experimentation or play going on with ideology and, and culture and ideas where they're trying to get you to look at something from a different angle or to package something in a different way that gets you to think about your life in a certain way. And those are mainstream. Like, those are not really deep cuts. But No, I mean, I don't, science, I don't yeah. necessarily know of them, but that means nothing. <laughs> yeah, but the mainstream science fiction that you do know is very different than, you know, the picture that I've painted of, of that literature. 
And so I've always wondered this idea, like, why is mainstream science fiction cinema so different than, like, mainstream science fiction literature? It, mad- it, it maddens me that it's, uh, like, cinema, it, like, Star Wars and Star Trek and all that stuff is so normal in comparison to those books. Well, I think maybe one of the reasons there is with those books, you have a lot more space to unpackage your ideas. Whereas yeah, yeah. for most films, if you go past two hours, you're already mm-hmm. losing your audience. So you have to kind of pick and mm-hmm. choose, all right, what's going to make, what's going to be the most interesting story that I can tell in this amount of time? I mean, yeah. y- you wouldn't spend two hours reading a book like that, though. No. But even then, La Jete has mm-hmm. more ideas in it in 28 minutes, 26 minutes than most films have in two hours. So that's like where I put La Jete where um, I sort of glorify it in that way that it reminds me of the books that I love because it's so packed, jam-packed with ideas in every single, you know, facet. And it's so short that you're like, man, this is this is some dense ideological discussion that we're having here when we're watching this film. And it reminds me of like Frank Herbert or, or something like that. And it, it, it makes me, it warms my heart, but then it makes me sad that like most science fiction films that we watch and we watched growing up mm-hmm. are, are not like that at all. You know? Yeah. Uh, I just watched one of the star Wars prequels because mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's what me and my roommates <laughs> are doing this month, every Friday. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, can, I can safely say, I didn't get the same feeling from Star Wars Revenge of the Sith than I did from Lajate. Uh, I, I definitely enjoyed Lajate more, even without all the all the lightsaber fights. Hey, man, and that uh, that makes me love you even more, buddy. That you said that. <laughs> so you know, I'm glad. I'm glad you know you're having this experience. And Although, if fun. they could have cast Christian Haydenson in Lajate. Oh man, I mean, he has a nice like he has a he's a beautiful dude. Oh, so, for I sure, mean, he could look good in those still images. Maybe he wouldn't need to act so much if he's just you know. No, we would we might never have gotten that that line about the sand if he had just <laughs> stuck to silent films and still images. Could have saved his yeah, career. Exactly. <laughs> it's so coarse. What's the line? Uh, it gets everywhere. I don't like the sand. It's coarse <laughs> and rough and gets everywhere. Not like you. I, I think I recently looked up what he was doing lately, and he still acts. Really? Stuff. I mean, huh. okay, well, good. I don't think it's good for you, Christian Hadenson. Hayden Christensen, I think. Eh. Christian Hadenson. Like sure I said, not a film buff. <laughs> I mean, I don't need you. Don't need to be a film buff for Hayden Christensen. I don't think. Yeah. My apologies to Hayden Christensen. <laughs> so, after our rant about Hayden Christensen or Christian Hayden, anything like that. <laughs> or Christian Aidenson. The historians like will decide which one of us is right. <laughs> in posterity. In the four, Fahrenheit 451 future where they're looking back and they have oral histories. Who will have the oral history of Hayden Christensen or Christian Aidenson? Mm-hmm. But no one now, knows. That we're, now that we're at the end of our discussion of this beautiful film, La Jetée by Chris Marker, which everyone should watch because it's one of my faves. Honestly, um, pretty pretty damn good. Would highly I'm so recommend. Glad to I'm, I'm gonna, that. I'm gonna get my roommates to watch it this weekend. Ah, oh, that's, dude, spread it around. That's all I want. I just want people to watch crazy shit like this. You know what I mean? That's the goal. And and next week, we are gonna be watching another film that is a favorite of mine, and and we'll preview that at the end of every episode. We'll preview what we're gonna watch next. Um, it's a film called The Thief and the Cobbler Recobbled Cut, and it's not actually a film because it was never completed. So mm. it's this animated film made by the iconic 
wonderful, beautiful Richard Williams, who actually, um, he died in August 2019, unfortunately, Ooh. which is kind of sad. But he's one of my favorite animators of all time and um, a beautiful hero of mine. And um, he worked on this passion project for over 30 years, and um, it, it was cut. Its funding was cut when it still had 15 minutes of material um, uh, to animate. And it's definitely not a simple story. It's not like him against the system, blah, blah, blah. Like, he had his problems, the studios had their problems, and it sort of just fizzled out still, at the end, unfortunately. Still, to, to end like that with 15 minutes left in the film, that that's heartbreaking. Very sad. And he was the, you know, the director, the animation director behind Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, he made um, uh, the Christmas Carol animated film in the 70s that is beautiful, I think 60s or 70s. Is that the one with that the elf awesome. dentist? Um, no. <laughs> no. No, he, it was like a 2D animated uh, Christmas Carol film. It's uh, on YouTube for free. All this stuff is on YouTube for free. Hey. Uh, experimental animation. And um, you can go watch The Thief and the Cobbler Recobbled Cut from the Thief Archive uh, YouTube channel absolutely for free because uh, a beautiful archivist named – I'm just calling everybody beautiful. I don't know why. But this wonderful archivist named Garrett Gilchrist took it upon himself to cobble together all of the existing footage of The Thief and the Cobbler into one archival rough cut. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it's if, currently uh, on the yeah, it's currently on the fourth version, Mark Four. Mark Four. All right. So if people yeah. if people want to watch this ahead of us, and that way they can point out all the places where we mess up during the next analysis, <laughs> uh, feel free to do that. Yeah, and it's amazing. It's an amazing film, and it's a film that I sort of use to get people into experimental animation, so they can go watch all that cool um, abstract line and color with jazz music. Um, which we will watch in a few weeks, which I'm very excited for you to see. Um, Can't wait. So, so this has been, you know, the first episode of our inaugural journey, our first step up the mountain mm-hmm. of avant-garde film. So uh, this has been this has been fun. I'm very excited for this. I'm excited to show you. And you have an open mind, man. I'm like La Jete is not an easy film for everybody to enjoy. I've been in classes where people almost refuse to talk about it after we watch it because really? they're just like, I don't, dude. That's a that's a topic for another day. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that but, one later. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's a tough film, and I'm I'm very impressed that you connected with it so much. Or, well, don't give me too I, much I credit. This. I will let you down for sure in the future. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a, that's enough of us ranting. And uh, thank you, all, thank you all for listening. Go follow everything on Split Tooth Media. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go read my interviews if you want to see some, you know, cool experimental filmmakers. Go listen to Synesthesia's podcast on Split Tooth Media, and follow us on Twitter and on Facebook and all of that stuff. And thank you, Split Tooth Media, for giving us a platform to rant. <laughs> yeah, we love you. And now you're a part of the Split Tooth family, T. So welcome. Yeah. You've been listening to a Split Tooth Media presentation. You can find us on Letterboxd as Arthouse Drive-In and on Twitter at Arthouse Inn. That's right, we can't change it. Feel free to join us in our little cars we talk about films each week, give or take. Probably. 